Just a reminder, our podcast deals with crimes that are often violent and graphic in nature, so listener discretion is advised. So when in doubt, leave the kids out. Now, please let us take you back in time. Hello, we are back for another week of podcasting, and we are the... Old-time crime gals. I'm Shannon. (laughs) That's Melissa. (laughs) Make sure we get it right. So I hope everybody's doing well out there and having a good summer. today. It's not rainy. It's cool. I just want to go to the beach. Yes, it's very nice. The beach would be a good place. Too many obligations, but (laughs) the beach would be a nice place to visit today. So it would be really pretty at the beach, but. Or the zoos, or even yeah, good day for beach. a hike. A hike, yeah. Speaking of today's story, yeah. I don't know. After- the winds, it's nice and breezy. It's not too hot. Yes. If you hike, they'll take uh, bear spray or <laughs> something to defend yourself for sure. So uh, we are actually going to do uh, our story today is called the Starved Rock Murders. And that is actually Starved Rock State Park in Illinois. And Melissa was telling me before we got started how the name came about. Do you want to share? Um, A long, long time ago, I do not know the time frame. There was, um, of course, tribal people living on the land, um, some indigenous tribes. They were having a fight between two different prominent um, chiefs, and they got cornered. And this particular tribe um, had no access to food and water for several days, and all of them starved to death. Okay. And so that's how it got its name from Star Rock. Wow. So, but the pictures are absolutely beautiful. It, it probably is a gorgeous place. I would. Um, that would be really interesting. It's sad how some of these places got their names, but then again, it's important to keep that mm-hmm. because then you understand why it got its name and kind of the things that people went through before you because if we forget those things then we might repeat them so that's very interesting how the state park got its name um so we're just going to talk about 1960s there were what three chicago housewives they wanted to go on a retreat so they went to starved rock state park it's a beautiful resort lodge and nature area about About two hours away from where they lived in riverside Okay, so Riverside. Okay, they lived in Riverside, but they wanted to get away from Riverside to go on retreat. Yes. Okay. All right. So the park is situated on the Illinois River Bluff and has over eighteen scenic canyons that feature waterfalls. And Melissa, how does your son say Illinois? No, he's Illinois. Illinois. You you have to say the S. He'll correct you because that's how he sees it on the paper. (laughs) I just thought that was funny because I know he he says it. Well, you know, he corrected corrected your son on how he says, how do you say forest? Forest? Forest. 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 He was reading and he said forest and and Brayden said, no, 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 no. That's not right. It's forest. Try again. And so he had to correct himself and then Brayden said, okay. Okay. Forest, I guess. Yeah. Forest. 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 Tomato, tomato. I guess I have <laughs> never really thought about and that. And sometimes when he says Illinois, they're doing the state game when he says Illinois, sometimes he says Illinois, depending on what movie's in, I guess. Okay. 
Very cool. Forest is a word I hadn't thought about. How you say it. All right. So we're back at the Starved Rock State Park. Yeah. And a lot of beautiful features, waterfalls, canyons. And it just sounds really, really pretty. Um, and some of the pictures you were showing me while mm -hmm. a few minutes ago were very pretty. Um, and over 2 million people visit this park each year um daily right mm -hmm. so well, not daily not daily not too many <laughs> daily but visited annually, annually. Um, over two million people so 13 miles of trails offer spectacular views lush vegetation um, that supports many wild animals that you can spot on your hiking adventure and uh, the pictures like we said earlier are just amazing a must visit place if you're in the area and love nature there are plenty of things to do, such as hiking, biking, fishing, camping, hunting. Um, how about hanging from a hammock on a tree, just chilling out? I don't know. I a think, bear might get you then. Oh, true. Never mind. <laughs> that just um, happened. <laughs> so it sounds like it has it all, except for maybe chilling out in a hammock, unless you're going to have a watch out. So um, then we've got, so it was Lillian. How do you say her last name? Odding. Odding. Age 50, Francis Murphy, 47, Mildred Linquist, 50, all friends and neighbors in their community of Riverside. Their husbands were all prominent businessmen in Chicago, and they decided to take off on a winter girls trip. Now, there were supposed to be six that went, but okay. for some reason, three backed out. So okay. could have been too cold or something, maybe, because as we'll hear, it was definitely winter with snow and um so maybe they just didn't want to be cold who knows uh they were going to take a four-day trip to starved rocks rock state park and lodge for hiking and just to be able to get away and they arrived on march the 14th they checked into their rooms and they decided to have lunch in the lodge's dining hall this is already sounding so much fun and relaxing <laughs> <laughs> it makes me want to go after their meal, about um, 1 p.m., the ladies took off uh, for a hike. So, I mean, they were ready to go. Yeah. I'd probably... I'd have been like, day one is rest day. Yes, um, day two, time. we're going to get up early. <laughs> yes, I think I would have definitely gone in to just chill. But I guess those views are so amazing that they couldn't resist taking them in for the first day. So Lillian's husband, George, liked to keep in contact with his wife. And now remember, we're back in the... 60s so no cell phones um so he wanted to keep in contact with his wife and he had actually recently had a heart attack prior to her going so most of the winter time Lillian um took care of him she was felt like she was due for a nice trip out with friends and he was excited for her so that's cool he wanted her to go after a few hours George decided he would call to Lillian's room at the lodge to um I guess check on her and see how the drive went and make sure they were getting settled in and all, all was okay. But there was no answer. Then he just thought, well, maybe the girls were ready to spend some time on the trails. And he made a mental note to call again tomorrow. Of course, now if we call and there's no answer, we're like, call, call, text, voicemail, voicemail, somebody, find somebody. <laughs> we can't wait for an answer because we're scared they're already, something's happened to them. So, yes. But back they, then it was no big deal. Like, ah, oh, she's not in a room. I'll just check Right. Out. That's right. So, just not a big deal. Um, and I actually grew up during that time of no phones available as you're driving down the road. And, 
you know, might not talk to your family for a couple of days because it was long distance rates and you had to call on special times. So um, kind of hard for a lot of young people in this day and time to imagine that, but that's how it was. <laughs> so on Tuesday, he rang their room again. And like the day before, he didn't get an answer. Then he called the front desk and expressed some concern. So the front desk promised they would send someone to her room to check. Uh, but they hadn't personally seen Lillian or the other two women. So a bellhop was sent to her room and placed a card, like a placard card on the door handle that said something to um, the effect of, you have messages, see the front desk. No one actually entered the room. So George, Lillian's husband, he didn't hear back from her. He decided to call the other husbands, thinking, well, maybe they've heard from Francis or Mildred. If they had checked in, he would feel much better. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that makes sense. Want to call and make sure. Um, so the other men also had not heard from their wives. They decided that in the morning, each one would call the lodge and put them on alert. I don't know why I would be like, let's all call the lodge now. Yes. <laughs> we haven't heard from our wives in two days. Of course, now I can see the flip side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they might be enjoying their quiet time <laughs> at the house. <laughs> Who knows? You know what we would do now? I would get in the car. I mean, it's a two hour drive. Yeah. I would I'd be, be like, there. Yeah. knocking down the door. Yeah. Excuse me. Where are they at? Why haven't they called? So, it's just, yeah, times are definitely different, aren't they? And, of course, now we have wonderful podcasts like this that make everybody aware of what happened throughout history and <laughs> what strange things occurred and make, and the crime, too, that's happening now. And you just want to make sure your your loved ones are safe. And um, so, yeah, I definitely, I, shoot, if it's been 30 minutes and somebody in my family's not home, I'm ready to jump <laughs> in the car and go 10 minutes down the road. So, um two hours I would I would have been gone well Tuesday night uh the weather was gonna it took a turn for the worse there again we gotta think about that we didn't have up to minute updates on weather yeah so no no weather forecast that you could just see on your phone and see the green and the blue and the purple or whatever's coming through um so the weather took a turn for the worse a snowstorm hit the area covered the ground with um a significant amount of snow and the men called again on Wednesday morning like they had planned. <laughs> Hotel staff had still not visually seen any of the women and they managed to get into the room. When they got into the room, it was untouched. Like the ladies hadn't been in there. Their luggage was still unpacked. The beds had not been slept on. So what, this is day three. This is Wednesday. Yeah. And they, ch they were supposed, they checked in on Monday. The towels and the linens were still hanging up. Um, and it was obvious that the women had never stepped foot in their room after their lunch in the dining hall um, when they arrived. And then, of course, they went on their hike. Immediately, their car was located in the parking lot. It was covered in snow. Looked like it hadn't been moved in days. So it had sat there all Tuesday through the, the snowstorm. Mm -hmm. So a good amount of snow on it. And then so everyone was starting to get really concerned. Since it had been since Monday, um, the women in the in the lodge eating, and now two days later, there's a snowstorm. snowstorm. Where were they? It was time to get police involved. So I'm thinking it would have been time to get somebody involved. But there again, Monday 5 p.m. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm, 
for me, I have to have new towels pretty much every day. So, but back then people just weren't as OCD about things <laughs> or we didn't know about it. Well, now um, they have like signs telling you to use your towels for a couple of days because it saves the water. You want to conserve. True. That's true. But, but day three, they needed some new towels and yeah. things. were. Well, especially if you have their husbands calling like, hey, have you seen them? They're like, oh, we haven't seen them. Yeah. I have no clue where they are. And we'll I just mean, send the think, bellhop to put a note on the door. Well, you would think back then they would have tried or something. I don't know, but well, so and then they get they get people together to search, right? Mm-hmm. So part of the so this search, search party, volunteers, yeah. anyone and everyone who can. So part of the search team were some youth members from a local uh, detention center. So it was a local youth detention center. I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't long into the search that they entered the St. Louis Canyon and they discovered a horrible crime scene. I guess y'all didn't know that was where that was going. Um, <laughs> well, maybe some of these detention boys um, and these or girls, these yes. youth members, um, were maybe scared a little straight after yes. seeing this horrible crime scene. Maybe they never went back to crime themselves <laughs> or anything that caused them to go to the detention center. But the, the crime scene, scene had been found um, and dragged into a small cave away from the trail were the bodies of Lillian, Francis, and Mildred. They had been tied up and beaten to death. Mm-hmm. The canyon where they were found was only a half a mile from the lodge. And um, once said it was apparent they had a crime scene on their hands, the detectives and police started to get to work. It was probably not best practice to do this today, but there is actual footage of a policeman. Wield- multiple police. Policemen. Okay, so multiple policemen wielding an open flamethrower, <laughs> aiming it at the snow to uncover evidence on the ground. All right, so, just so blasting away the snow to see what had happened yeah, two days before. That's one way to get rid of the snow and some evidence. <laughs> I, even back then, I would think, where did that not make sense? Well, it but, said they would they were sweeping with like brooms too to kind of get the snow out of the way, and then I guess that was very tedious, and it was a large area, so then just brought out flamethrowers. <laughs> <to laughs> so it was 1960. DNA wasn't as big of a thing back then, um, and so they probably ruined anything that you know could have been used as evidence for the most part. Well, they did find some stuff. Okay, all right. So, they managed to uncover a three-foot frozen tree branch. Okay. So, I'm glad it didn't burn up or waste <laughs> away. It was covered in dried blood. So, it was good that the front... I mean, you know, they could have thawed that thing out and burned it to crisp, you know. Well, they said the when wood. it thawed out and it was so, like, fragile, it would, like, fall apart if you tried to, like, okay. touch it or mess with it. But when it was frozen solid, the thing, you know, yeah. had some power. Um, so, that could have been the murder weapon, or most likely was the murder weapon. They uncovered a pair of broken binoculars and a camera the, um, where the strap had been broken. Roadblocks were set up on roads leaving and entering the park. Since one of the women had a handful of hair, okay, so she had grabbed some hair, it was suspected that they had put up a fight. Um, park goers were warned to be on the lookout for anyone who looked like they had been in a fight recently. So, sounds like those women fought, which is... You know, I the mean, fact that they wanted to go hiking yeah. as soon as they got there, they were probably and they were in shape, shape and, and, yeah. and, you know, decent athletic ability and um, pretty well could take care of themselves, I imagine. If their husbands were like, sure, go out in the woods and hike for four days. Yeah. Like, yeah they're good. <laughs> 
So um, at the end of the week, after processing the crime scene, the focus was turned to the lodge. It was the last known sighting of the three ladies. Thursday and Friday of that week, authorities rounded up every employee and park ranger in the area to take polygraph tests. Hmm. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So, and everyone passed. The, the first go round, yes. One employee told authorities something interesting. They said that on Tuesday, one of the other employees at the lodge, his name is Chester Weger, maybe, Weger. or Weger, showed up for work with a bunch of scratches on his face that looked new. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> um, police immediately went to find Chester, and they wanted to have a little chat with him. He told the police that he cut himself shaving. All right. Air quotes. Yes. <laughs> he claimed to be in the lodge's basement working uh, a, on writing some letters at the time of the murder. So, don't know who to, or, but it just said he was in the basement writing letters. And letter writing was something it's, back then, too, because we didn't yeah. have computers and texts and all that. But for a man to be writing letters in the basement sounds kind of creepy, too. Well, so. I said he was stoking the like he would fire. He was in charge of like keeping the fire going. It is winter. It was okay. snow on the ground. So okay. maybe at that point he was just... Gotcha. He also had a leather jacket uh, that appeared to have a stain on it. The police said it looked like blood, so they asked Chester to turn it over um, to be tested. And he didn't mind. Evidently, he agreed. It was sent off and later determined that the blood was not human. It appeared to be animal blood. And that made sense because Chester was a hunter. Um, after that, he dropped off as a suspect altogether. So um, that sounded like some pretty red, big red flags, though, for him. So it sounds like he was a good suspect to start with. So then police started to analyze the physical evidence, hoping it would turn them into the right direction. So Lillian's camera, which was found, it was an Argus C3. It was a sturdy camera uh, and you had to know how to use it. It had knobs, a knob on the top that advanced the roll of film to take the next picture um, think like the disposable wedding cameras. Yeah, but you ever had those like the Kodak ones where uh -huh. you have to turn the knob and then it clicks and tells you how many you I'm left. a little bit older than Melissa so I actually remember <laughs> before the wedding cameras. <laughs> that was the best that was the closest good, thing I could yes. think of that what people would realize. I remember was. the one that you had to put the flash on the top. And actually the Polaroid. The yes, they used to have these little cameras. I can't remember what they were called but something with the number 10 and there was these long flashes and so you would take the picture and it exposed the flash and then it, you'd have like four or five flashes that you could use for the pictures wow. yeah very old and a polaroid when it was originally polar polaroid not the new polaroids with the teeny tiny <laughs> like you gotta have a magnifying now, glass. i have some polaroids that were taken when i was younger there you, you go to, to shake that's right to get it yep. to come out so, um, but she had a fancy camera for back then yes. that you had to turn the knobs and all that. So my son has one now that I can't operate. Just, I'm not, <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's not surprising. Well, okay. now the cell phone cameras on cell phones oh, yeah. are almost much better than the, well, the, they are. the longer lenses. Yeah, that's true. So, um, but yeah, and you like cameras because you mm -hmm. for I have photography. To ask well, I took some pictures at the zoo where the when we were at the museum, and my husband was like, "Why don't you just use your cell phone? They'll come out much better." Well, and they did yeah. that when I was inside trying to do you know the manual and all the. By the time I was fiddling with everything, and they just pulled out the cell phone, and yeah. they got better pictures. 
Might to as be well. honest. And but you need or to maybe I just need a new upgrade on my on my camera. If you're listening, husband. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> hint, hint. But so you need to go back and research those old cameras I'm talking about because they're kind of cool. That was the thing in my day. Um. All right, so I'm looking at my papers. Yeah, oh, so you yeah, to so turn, turn the knob, off. but the disposable ones, like the, the newer ones, it would click. Like, you, could, you couldn't turn the knob so far. Okay. But on hers, you could keep turning it. Okay. So if you didn't know when to stop or if you didn't do it enough. You, you had to be experienced. You would overexpose the film and, like, take pictures on top of pictures. Ah, so that's. So you had to know how to use our camera. Yeah, so that's how these people get these ghostly pictures from the past right um which so, in fact when one of her pictures when they developed it they said looked like you could see a man but it was triple exposed it was oh, like three wow. layers of, of the of the frame so they were in the the magazines ran with the story like she took a picture of her attacker oh like, wow this is who it was but you couldn't you couldn't see it yeah. It was just overexposed. And you know how the media tends to run with things and tends to blow things out of proportion. Yes. Um, even now. Oh, yes. Uh, so that was like a lead that didn't really go anywhere. Okay. Um, but they were they able to find some pictures of the ladies smiling and yeah. stuff? So, and hiking up the trails. So that was probably, if they were able to give those to the husbands, that might have given them some comfort, I would think. Some last pictures, and they were happy. And when they were smiling um, on their little hike, and it was snow covered. And, and in the yeah. wintertime, the waterfalls freeze over, so it's still just as beautiful as during the summer. So maybe the husbands, and you know, were able to have those pictures if it didn't upset them too much. Um, so then the companies that employed the husbands offered up reward money. Together, there was around $30,000 worth of reward for information about what happened. Back then, that was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. There was a funding um, issue for the investigation. So time was getting past, and there wasn't any progress. Um, things were getting where they were slowing down because the Chester guy, they ruled him out kind of. And at this point, more than 254 people had been interviewed and over 2,115 leads were followed up on. The man hours spent on this case so far were 21360 So the bill for taxpayers was over $65,000. The state attorney, Harland Warren, pushed to get more funding to continue properly investigating this triple homicide. The government actually threatened to stop the funding for the entire investigation. Um, so, you know, that had, to, that had to be really I mean, that's a lot of money. Well, a lot of money they've spent within yeah. two weeks and still haven't found anybody. Yeah. And you've got to look at it like you've been interviewed almost 300 people. You have had 2,100 leads. Everything's going cold. Of, like, why are we going to continue to pump money in this when it could have just been um, a random person? But on the flip side, you, somebody, somebody did this locally and they wanted to find them. I yes. mean, because you got people scared to come to the park. Then you've got the whole tourist situation. And That's fun. right. So, um, early uh, July 1960, since police were not getting anywhere, the state attorney, Harlan Warren, he launched his own investigation. Soon after this started, someone actually threw a stone into his home, shattering a window. And he demanded to take a look at all the evidence 
something had to be a clue left behind by the murderer. So, I mean, yeah, the fact that somebody threw a stone into his window clearly um, showed that they had there was somebody still out there and this needed to be solved. So and we'll that they were mad that he was on their trail. That's right. <laughs> so we will pick up the trail when we come back. And we're back. Yep. Going to see where the trail went with the state attorney. So, um, which it's not their job to investigate. Their job is to look at all the evidence and find out if they have enough stuff to prosecute. Uh, yeah. Go forward with investigations, but he just wanted to take it up upon himself to find out who did this to, you know, it was at a state park. It was, um, a horrendous crime against three women that it probably just kind of was a stain in a way uh, back then, whereas now it's just common to have <laughs> crimes happening everywhere. So he um, took a look at all the area maps. He decided to start with the most obvious place. So he started at the lodge. Well, I think for, first we have to, um, didn't we stop after he took all the evidence to his office? think maybe they we were going to backtrack a little bit oh okay yes um, <laughs> sorry about that guys so this was 1960 the state attorney took over and yep he um, had all the evidence brought to his office which was in a different jurisdiction and you gotta think now he's kind of working against the police because he's kind of like saying you didn't do your job good yeah. enough so now i'm gonna do it but he did have some police that were helping him um so he decides to take a look at everything that they had collected so that was like the frozen tree limb, yep. the blood-stained clothes, the camera, which we've talked about with the torn strap, broken binoculars, and nothing seemed out of place for a crime scene in the woods with hikers, uh, except for one thing. He just kept coming back to this string um, that I guess they were tied up with, so it was thin, and it was more like a twine, something that a hiker would not usually carry with them because it wasn't strong enough to use for climbing, uh, so he was determined to find out where it came from. Warren took a look at all the area maps, like I had said a while ago, and he wanted to start with the no most obvious place because the lodge was kind of where all this began because that's where they were going to go and that's where they went out from when they went to hike. Um, and they never came back to their room. So it was where they were last seen. He goes and he speaks with the owner, shows him the twine, and asks if there's anything like that on the property. At first, he says housekeeping may have something like that, but then he remembers that they actually kept a ball of twine in the kitchen. It was used to tie the meat up while cooking or freezing. Um, and sure enough, there was a ball of twine in the back pantry of the kitchen. So tests were done, and the twine used to tie up the women came from that exact ball sitting in the kitchen of the lodge. You know, it's and crazy. And sitting here, we watch a lot of mystery shows and Melissa does a lot of the research for our podcast. And, you know, you would automatically think, why didn't they check the twine? But there again, <laughs> I mean, this is the 60s and they might not have, you know, just thought to look at every little thing. Whereas now, just even a hair or anything um, can. But it was like the same 20 strand wrapped up like it they were able to prove scientifically that the, that twine came from that ball in that kitchen. So, you know, this is the hot spot, the lodge. 
So going over all the notes, um, they look at what employee might have had access to the twine. And one who showed up uh, for work that Tuesday with cuts on his face from from so-called air quotes shaving. Yeah, remember that guy? Yeah. <laughs> um, he was actually one of the employees. So they knew they had to find Chester Weger. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and have another chat as soon as possible. And guess what? He wasn't working at the lodge anymore, Melissa. No. So um, surprise, surprise, he quit his job. Mm. So he and decided and decided to become a house painter for a family member. Now he was a dishwasher with at the lodge, so he he was in the kitchen a lot. So he did have access to the twine, but suspiciously he dropped his job and decided yes. to go on and do something else. And I'm sure the kitchen didn't stay locked, you know. So they yeah. he could argue that anybody could have gotten the twine, but there again, he no longer working there. Um, so. Once they located him, he was given a total of four different polygraphs, and he failed all of them. Warren, um, which was the state attorney, brought in outside firm to conduct more polygraphs. So after four more failed tests with a new administrator, it was clear that Chester was who they were looking for this whole time. Um, so there it was time to build a case. Polygraphs can't be used in court as evidence, uh, so they're only used as a tool used to help focus an investigation. That's a good start, though. You feel eight of those. Yeah. Um, after the failed test, authorities decided to put a month-long, 24-hour tail on Chester. He was always under surveillance, and every move that he made was followed. But get this. He knew he was being watched. So, if how exhausting for those policemen and agents who were required to follow this guy knowing that he knows that you're following yeah i mean you're unless you're complete (laughs) without i mean you're just you have no brain you're not going to do something crazy um so chester would play games with the people that were um, doing surveillance with on him he would enter a bar and then he'd sneak out the back and just enjoy watching them try to find him and chase him He would lead them for hours through the woods on pointless random hunting trips. And then he would turn around and point the rifle in their direction because he knew how secretive could you be if you've got a 24 hour tail and you're walking this hiking trail in the the park, you're going to. Yes. So you're going to find out you're following at some point. Right. That's right. So then they started looking for cases that were similar, um, in the area that he could have been responsible for. And they actually went back six months uh, before the murders and they found an incident that had taken place with this high school couple. They were at another local park on a Sunday night. Um, After an evening hike, they returned to their car. And so weren't, didn't you say these were just knew this was a first date? Yeah, they were high school seniors and this was their very first date. They just stopped at the state park. They took a little hike and head back to their car. This man jumps um, jumps out holding a rifle. And then he ties them up. And he robbed the gentleman. But he uh, raped the young girl. And then he just left. He left them there. Uh, the couple managed to break free. Because we had mentioned they tied up. And they drove immediately to the sheriff's office in Ottawa. To report the crime. 
And when they got there, they were treated more like criminals than victims and separated and interrogated for hours. And they were actually drilled on their relationship to one another and their personal habits. But as we stated before, this was their first date. His so, name was John. I just met him. Yes. No, his name wasn't John. But I'm just... <laughs> so can you, that just had to be traumatic. Yeah. Um, it makes you, if something ever happened, you wouldn't want to go report it because yeah, of this. <laughs> so, I mean, and so she was assaulted, but they didn't do all of the testing and the, I mean, the, there was, there wasn't yeah. that, that, that. They didn't you know, it was almost like a culture back then of if it happened to you, you caused it, you right. know, that whole, what were you wearing or why right. did you provoke somebody? That's right. But this, the guy that was with her, she didn't even accuse him. No, so, I mean, you know, and, and he got robbed. He yeah. So they separated them. So obviously their stories were the same, but just yeah yeah sad um so then the the sheriff's department after all that they decided that the couple that they were making the story up and they kicked them out of the office and closed the case Woo! that would as a parent i don't know she may have not <laughs> even wanted to tell her parents about it but mm. she probably didn't tell a soul after that yeah because they weren't believing her then a year later after um the three women were found in the cave murdered it was decided that maybe this case uh, with the first date couple should be revisited. Really? It should have been visited in the first That's place. right. I mean, <laughs> poor girl. And so they tracked the girl down and visited her at her house. And they brought, you know, a picture of Chester, who was their suspect, along with other mug shops because they wanted to make sure that he got a fair, um, a fair shake, that, you know, they weren't biased. And so once the young lady was shown the picture of Chester... She screamed and had such a reaction. They knew who the guy, you know, he was the guy. And so in November of 1960, Chester Weger was arrested for this crime that happened in 1959. So, so they got him. Yes. But something. just not for the murders. Yeah, so but now they have to figure out how they're going to pin that. Not pin because he did it, but. Right. So get him to confess yes. that he did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and the only pen they're going to use is the one writing up the, right. the information. So now it was Chester's turn to be interrogated. So for hours, he was yelled at. Then while being yelled at to confess, he brought in his the parents. Detective, yeah, he brought okay, in. The detective brought in the parents. They brought in his wife, his children, photographers, a medical examiner, other officers, even a judge. And there was always a court reporter present. They even told him that his wife was going to cheat on him when he spends time in prison. Oh my goodness. No, yeah, know. back then the interrogations they were would do that. You yeah. know, good cop, bad cop. There was a lot more stuff that went on that, you know, yeah, now it's not recorded twenty four seven. Yeah. Um, so you know, you did have a lot of coerced confessions. Yes. Um, but I mean, bringing all those people in, like I just don't know it why was witness. that was necessary. But yes, yeah. it was witnessed by several people. Yeah, because you would think they wouldn't bring them in, but they witnessed. I mean, I guess the good thing about that is they were witnesses to what was going on. But still, yeah. After several hours, he, he finally breaks. Chester finally breaks. And by this point, he's in tears. And he finally says, in quote, all right, I did it, in quote. Um, so the next day, he offers to go to the canyon and show um, everyone 
how everything happened in the canyon in the cave. And I mean, they bring the detectives, they bring police, they bring the media. It was like, all right, we got this guy. There's you know so, no danger, and you can come to the park now, and he's going to tell us exactly how it happened. Okay. So he said the robbery was his only motive when he spotted the women out for their hike. He tried to grab a purse off of one of the women, but the strap broke. But then he realized it was a camera, so it wasn't an actual purse. It was a camera. He begged them to let him go and just leave, which they agreed. Um, whew, I don't know. What uh, I yeah, I think do. he walked them back or like, you know, hey, can you get closer to the, the canyon edge? Give me a head start. I'll leave you. Yeah. You know, and just don't report it and, and everything. And, and they agreed. Wow. And so evidently he didn't leave, but he, he did. He just pretended to leave, and then he decided to turn around and follow them instead. So one of the women saw him, and she actually decided to lunge at him. He had no choice, he said, but to pick up a nearby tree limb and hit her over the head. Okay. No choice. No, no choice. No choice. Once that happened, he panicked, and the other two women were scared, so he tied them up. But the strings around one of their ankles came loose, and he was afraid they would escape. So he decides to hit them as well um, with the frozen tree limb. So authorities had another question for Chester. It seemed as if the bodies were moved after the fact. Why did he drag them into a cave? He says because he heard a sound, and he decided to move them into the cave. And once he looked up, he saw a red and white plane circling the area so he did it basically to cover his tracks um because he didn't want to be seen by the plane and this could have been easily confirmed so the ottawa airport um had a record of a red of a cream and red plane um, and it was in their airfield and one look at the flight log confirmed there was an entry from march the 14th 1960 starved rock state park at 1.30 p.m. So the police contacted the pilot and verified that it was the same plane that Chester had seen from the ground. He was on his way to check out Plum Island. His flight path would have been right over the St. Louis Canyon. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, he, he had to move them because he didn't want to be seen and made out. So, after he confesses, he backtracks. It's documented word for word, but he disagrees. So just like Melissa said, I mean, everybody was there um, witnessing the first confession when he yeah. told everything. Then he went out to the crime scene and that was all and videoed. And puts himself there and, with, the, with the plane. Yeah, with a plane that, you know, <laughs> only he would have known because the police didn't have a record of this yet. Yeah, and they why had would they know the there plane? was a plane yeah. flying around? So he tell, I mean, he, he kind of told on himself, but he, he still says he backtracks and he says, um, he disagreed that he claims that he was beaten up and forced into a confession. While false confessions do happen, it is highly unlikely in this case. Like we said, with so many people involved in the questioning and the photographs taken, I mean, he had a medical examination yeah. afterwards, and you can, I mean, there's no bruises, there's no, I mean, it's obvious that they, they didn't beat him up. I mean, his mom was, you know, there. Yeah. Uh, it's just. So, on his 22nd birthday, he was sentenced to life in prison, and to this day, he claims he is innocent. But you have to go back to, we got the twine, right? Yeah. And the where it was in the kitchen where he worked he knew the plane which showed was, up the next day with scratches on his face right and then the plane that was never told early on when he was 
discounted as a suspect in the beginning. And his leather so, jacket that had that blood stain, which, yeah. okay, so yes, it was tested animal blood, but it was also real leather. And in the tanning process, real leather is made from animals, and it's possible that it, it cross-contaminated well, with the actual true, human yeah. blood. So, um, of course, there's always rumors, mm -hmm. and they swirled around. So, some of the rumors from the town, he needed help to overpower three middle-aged women and people doubted that he could do that alone some people think he had help from a friend the lodge owner's son to be exact people thought it was odd that as soon as the bodies were discovered he was shipped off to europe for several years before he returned hmm so he was just yeah, they said he was like a drifter like he okay. was just kind of one like a shady character anyway and he was one of chester's friends so he was Chester's friend, and um, it, but he did speak with authorities during the investigation and passed a polygraph. But if Chester, why wouldn't he have given him up? Yeah, if he's been like, sitting he's there for free, yeah. you know, in Europe. <laughs> I mean, and he had receipts from like Eddington that he was in a different town, like, but you know how people yeah. and the rumors media, and they start talking that yeah. there's still people that like are interviewed that no, he didn't do it, he didn't do it alone. Um, uh, yeah, the water cooler and, yeah. of course, the coffee house. And so, of course, um, Chester's lawyers constantly filed for all the appeals and parole hearings. They even asked a judge in 2004 to retest the evidence. So his leather jacket, the hair from the victim's hand, uh, they wanted to prove that they were not his and finally be able to confirm that he was innocent. But this could not happen, even if the results would have shown that. After all of his appeals were exhausted, the evidence from his particular case had been handled by a ton of people, including school children. Yeah, it was um, okay. They were used it as like educational tools and and like kids in school. Like it said, it had been passed around by and touched by so many people that it just now couldn't even be tested. Wow! So it was contaminated then. Um, November 21st of 2019, on his 24th try, Chester Weger, in a 9-4 to four vote, finally got his parole. His release was delayed by 90 days. It was required that Chester be evaluated for his mental state and to clear him as a threat to society. If found to have any mental issues, they could request for him to be locked away indefinitely, not to be released at all. On February 21st, 2020, pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. Chester walked out a free man. He had been the longest held inmate in Illinois. And he actually said, they ruined my life. They locked me up for 60 years for something I didn't do. And that was quoted. But, um, uh, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> So he, yeah. So a lot of evidence. He confessed. There's a lot of. Well, you know, he did do tape. the first assault and rape. Well, that's and true. If you did that, then yeah. more than likely gonna repeat offend. So. So that I mean, nice. whether he got out, he's he, he 80, got out. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's 80 now, and he's out, and he survived yeah. the pandemic and prison. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So how about do we? I'm sure we don't, but any information about the wives, husbands, or... Not the husbands, but I know he does have a Chester. daughter and a son, and they both stayed in the area, lived in the area. He's got granddaughters now. Um, 
not sure if they're in his life because I couldn't find anything after the fact, like what he's been up to now. Okay. Um, but he's okay. he's out there doing his thing, and that's just crazy. And I think there's a lot of people out there doing their thing these days. So yeah. hopefully, <laughs> oh, but yes. Um, yep. So so the sources, Miss mm-hmm. Melissa. Um, the Chicago Tribune had several articles, including one that updated on his release. There's a documentary on YouTube that um, I'll link in the description. It has, um, I'll put it with the information on the Facebook page. It was like an hour long. I watched it this morning, and there's a guy on there that has written a book about the case, and they're very knowledgeable about the um, ins and outs of it. It was very interesting um, to me. And the, <laughs> so you've got this lodge that's the center of this hub investigation and you've got mm-hmm. news conference press releases and interviews and they're, they're doing all this stuff in this lodge and you know who's serving them coffee and tea this whole entire time was chester oh wow listening to everything, everything about what they were going how they were wow. sitting That's there crazy. serving them their coffee and tea and he ended up being the one they were they like, it's like a good lifetime movie yeah. or, or whatever <laughs> movie is popular these days so um thanks for joining us yeah and so you hit us up on facebook like always and just remember if you do the crime it'll catch up with you in time and we'll talk about it